episode 154, The What and the How of Evidence-Based Medicine. Today, I speak with Alex Akers, who is a VP over at Health Catalyst. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Evidence-based medicine, EBM. EBM sounds great and all, in theory. And it often is great, except when it's not, or when you can't figure out what the evidence actually is or proves or how to make it actionable. I speak with Alex Akers today about the complexities of compiling believable data, prioritizing outcomes, and creating a system that can self-correct if the evidence changes. Alex is a VP over at Health Catalyst. He is also assistant producer here on the podcast. It was great to have him on the show today. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Alex, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacy. It's great to be here. You know, let's talk about this at, at the macro level. We've got evidence-based medicine, which is, as the name implies, the medicine that the evidence would suggest is the best practice, the best way to go. Right. And then we've got implementation, which is actually practicing the evidence-based medicine. You would think that this would be dots that are connected. How much evidence-based medicine is actually in fact in practice and add some color to what the overall situation might look like. I mean, it's unfortunately, the data bears us out, it's really a coin toss as to whether you're going to receive evidence-based care. I think it's 40, 40 to 50% of the time with some of the latest data that shows that actual evidence-based practice is being done across the country. And that may be a little bit dated, but I think this certainly, uh, I, I think is one of my caveats, it certainly isn't a blame game on the physicians. I feel very much for them because there's, I think there's about two and a half million different articles published a year, 20,000 journals. So the average doctor has to read about 30 journals to stay informed on their specialty. There's just no way that the individual physician can keep up. You know, if they're at an academic medical center and close to where research is being done, that helps. So there's a proximity effect to being around people that are doing that research and you can talk to them in the hallways and, and maybe be a little bit closer to that. So I think from from my perspective, there's certainly the bottom up approach of how does the individual physician improve on adoption of evidence-based medicine. But I think from where I sit and, and just our experience in my current role, there is a top-down approach that I think we're at least seeing that's working where at the enterprise level, how do you at a health system help your physicians and clinicians scale evidence? How do you pick the right evidence? How do you get them to agree that that's correct, and then to actually adopt that. And that's very simplistic on a, to say, but it's for a, a health system, it's really tough to consistently do that. I read this quote this morning that I, I think you will probably like, Alex. Knowledge is not power. Implementation is power. Right. There has been a lot of talk relative to the geographic differences in the quality of care which is received. And I know you have some personal experience with that also. 
this whole discussion is is super personal to me just and I and uh, there's tons of listeners that probably have a very similar story but you know my dad mom and dad lived in a smaller town dad was about 80 at the time woke up with shortness of breath my mom rushed him to the ER and he was diagnosed with heart failure and he was told by his local cardiac surgeon that you know he was going to need valve replacement and the best option for that was open heart surgery Luckily, at the time, I was working for a company that did kind of virtual second opinions. And so I had the benefit of being able to reach out to two doctors, one at Harvard and one at Cornell. And both told me there, you know, there's not just one option of open heart surgery, but there's a range of options, many of which were much less invasive. I talked about that with my dad. And, you know, like many older folks, they get comfortable in their community. And and he elected to not go to an academic center, but to stay and, and have the open heart surgery. And unfortunately, just as the two kind of expert physicians had predicted, he, he did okay with the surgery, but then the rehab process for somebody that, that old is really tough and, and he ended up passing away. You know, I think that's pretty emblematic of a conversation that a lot of people have around the country. You know, for me, I was armed with some additional information that told me, uh, you know, there are other options that Unfortunately, there are probably many circumstances where patients and families don't know that and and you're sort of restricted to your geography or or your local, you know, whichever doctor you happen to be talking to. And and again, that this is not a indictment and and point your finger at at that individual physician or even physicians in general. I think it's uh as I say, it's a very tough challenge for them. And I think the quintessential example of evidence-based medicine being delayed or dawdling through its implementation phase is beta blockers. You know, it's an often quoted statistic that it took almost 17 years, despite the fact that everybody knew that beta blockers were the thing to prescribe after a heart attack, like in a big way, took 17 years for that to become standard practice. So kind of given all of this, Irregular implementation, your dad's case definitely being example. What's hindering this? Well, I do think there's, uh, you know, the just the challenge of getting if you got three doctors in a room and compared how they treat a certain patient, you probably will have some disagreement. And so, if you can scale that up to the health system size or the country size, and and you know, getting consensus around what is the right evidence to follow is very challenging. And so I think there's the, do you think about adoption? Uh, that's a very real challenge that we see all the time at, at organizations is, you know, you, you have to work with clinicians to uh, get some sort of agreement and consensus around what evidence they actually want to follow and then get them to champion that. And that's, a, unfortunately, a somewhat slow process. You have, at the, as I mentioned earlier, kind of at the individual level, Docs every day that are trying their best to keep up with the huge flood of articles and new information that's coming at them, that in and of itself is very challenging and everybody's got their own strategy to try to try to do that. But then you think about like as you as you mentioned, beta blockers or you pick something like sepsis care, you know, that in many hospitals the number one killer is sepsis and just getting doctors to consistently provide the same care for that is challenging. The three and six hour bundle are fairly well documented and health system leaders and physicians have a tough time, one, educating folks, getting consensus on that. And then 
being able to pull the data out of their systems to show how did Dr. A care for this patient different than Dr. B and provide that real-time feedback to them. So there's a lot of challenges that surround you know, the individual physician and caregiver providing consistent evidence-based medicine. And then, you know, on the side of that, I think there is a kind of a growing groundswell of support versus non-support of cookbook medicine and and telling doctors exactly what to do. And so we're, we're at this interesting stage where while science, you would think that science usually will, will win the day with folks, especially like physicians, they really need to drive this. And so you've got to have your clinicians at the health system level, at least as engaged as possible to help determine what evidence is right and then help their peers adopt it. And I think besides even agreeing on what that evidence is, the other side of that equation is what outcome are you striving for? Right. And I think that's also not a single point. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, thinking back to my dad's example, we really had two of the three, just the definition of evidence-based medicine, which is best available evidence, clinical judgment, and then the values of the patient. Certainly, you know, we presented the options to my dad. And at the end of the day, what he valued was his local doctor. And so that was an important part of that decision. And so there could be an argument that you know, that was evidence-based medicine. He, he was finally presented with those options and, and he elected the path that he felt was best for him. And so that is a key part of all of this. And, and it's just an unfortunate uh, reality of healthcare, I think, today where I've had a number of surgeries, orthopedic surgeries, and every time I see an orthopedic surgeon, they recommend surgery, which is not very surprising in this, in this day and age. But there are certainly other options that are out there and physicians don't have the extra time, unfortunately, many times to coach a patient on the range of options, the risks of, of each type. And that would really be a, the conversation that would be much more informative for a patient and their family to have. What are the range of options that are available? Not all of which maybe we at this location can provide, but you know, if you drive two hours to your local academic medical center, they might be able to provide some other options. And having that full decision tree in front of you, that would be a powerful conversation to have you know, when you're making life and death decisions. We've got the what evidence do you use on one side of the equation. We've got the what outcome are you actually striving for on the other side of the equation. And then we've got the messy hairball in the middle, which is that the evidence doesn't cover every single circumstance. The ev- right. Maybe the evidence was on healthy white males and we're looking at a geriatric African-American. You, you know what I mean? Like there's always going to be a certain amount of judgment that is is necessary unless we have we reach singularity as far as data points go, which I don't <laughs> think is going to happen anytime soon. We've got all these forces against the idea, while at the same time, I don't think there'd be anyone that would disagree that if you have a verifiable conclusion, that it would be foolhardy to disregard it entirely. What's going to help us get further along the curve of using science as a basis for for decision-making where it makes sense? Clinicians need to drive this. They, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are still making the decisions and recommendations and need to be in the driver's seat of owning the care that they give. And so there will be a day, as you say, kind of, you know, in a a very cool future, potentially in the singularity where 
that we have these amazing decision support tools where every bit of data and evidence is presented to the clinician and, and they're able to, in real time, see the full universe of data and make that decision. But the reality of today is just getting data together for an individual's entire care over the past year is very challenging, integrating that data, presenting it to the clinician. And so there's there's a tremendous challenge they have of getting all the data in place. So, you know, I think prioritizing within a health system, number one, is a challenge and where they need to start. And so uh, I like to think about two ways to think about that. One is where the biggest sources of variability, and you can look at things like cost and other proxies for for variability and outcomes variability. As a colleague of mine says sometimes, very strikingly, he says, stop killing patients. Where where are the places like sepsis and other places where if we don't make the right evidence-based decisions, we we have the highest risk of really harming patients. And so as an enterprise and, and as a clinician leadership team, you have to start by figuring out where where do we start? Is it you know, central line infection care? Is it sepsis? Is it post-op care for a patient? What, what are the things that we think most dramatically can impact the biggest number of patients? And so you start by prioritizing that. What I'm cottoning on to right now is that you are giving advice to a health system on how if they would like to move forward down the let's use evidence-based medicine path, how they can begin to implement a strategy. You're kind of giving a strategic stepwise here. Yes, that's right. And and I would not be the expert on for an individual physician to say, here's what you need to do, Dr. X, to make your you know care better. But I think what we've seen at least how health systems are starting to adopt this and getting some momentum around it. And unfortunately it is still a slow learning curve, but this is what seems to work is you pick a big opportunity area, uh, maybe it's in cardiac care and, and how you want to do heart failure, uh, like the example with my father, or big high volume areas where you have a significant patient population. You have to get the right folks at the table to sort through the evidence. There are organizations like the American College of Cardiology that are doing that for systems. There are new roles being created within health systems, whether that's the Sometimes the chief medical officer, sometimes the chief quality officer, different roles that are responsible for helping to, to be a kind of a scaling mechanism for evidence-based care. Pick one or two areas that you want, you know, for the majority of patients. And again, to your point, not everybody's the same. There's always going to be art in this, but you want to have a set of guidelines that your physicians are consistently following and then be able to use data to, to see how they're doing and provide feedback. That's Physicians are great with data. They love data as long as they believe it. And so you have to provide that to them and provide that feedback. And once you get, you know, one guideline in place and folks are seeing improved outcomes, that sort of you build on that. And that's what we've seen, you know, places like Alina and, and other large integrated delivery systems. That that's the, the approach that they've taken is you have to start quote, small with one or two projects and then scale that up. And over the course of a few years, they had, they rolled out 20 different evidence-based protocols. And that seems to be the approach, at least with where we are now in healthcare, that, that is seems to be sort of a pragmatic and smart way to do it. 
I interviewed Dr. David Westfall Bates several months ago from Brigham. He mentioned a project that he's very excited about. I think he called it Scamps, if I'm not mistaken. But okay. the, but the idea was was similar to that. What he was endeavoring to do was to get departments, you know, different specialties together to identify the critical decision points in an evidence-based pathway and then get all of the specialists in the department to agree on what the decision-making criteria should be in that moment. And the, the one that he mentioned in the podcast was, uh, I think it was wrist surgery. And I'm mm. recalling all this from memory, so give me a little leeway here. But, um, <laughs> but the point was is that given certain clinical criteria, you had one surgeon who was like operate and you had another surgeon who was like never operate. So they That's all right. so they all got together and and determined what the actual decision making criteria would be. And, you know, as a result, I think wrist surgeries declined about it was a double digit percentage. One of the things that he also expounded upon, and nothing for nothing, I've been in some of these meetings myself, and I can tell you they're terribly painful. You know, yeah. how, how do you get four highly experienced experts to come to some sort of group <laughs> collaborative decision on right. what the right answer is to an admittedly thorny question? No, it's super. It's super challenging, and that that alone can drive what project you pick. If if you have one that there simply is an inability to get consensus on that, that's probably not the best project to start with. So you want to find one where you have the those physicians that are in a leadership role that their peers respect and and will listen to. And as I say, at the end of the day, doctors are such data hungry people that a combination of the existing evidence that's out there that that you can summarize and bring together and and have them agree that, okay, this is how we want to do this. The way I like to think about a health system now is it's really sort of a, a learning lab of all this evidence that's been out there. As you said, you know, we do all these great clinical trials, but the patients that present are going to be maybe a little different than what were in that particular trial. And so you need ongoing data to say, okay, here's here's the path that we have decided to take and implement. Is it working? And then you can adjust in real time. And that's that's where I think we're in a cool spot in healthcare right now is we are finally coming to the point where having access to that kind of data and, and that intelligence is becoming real. So the ability to scale up some of this evidence-based care and, and actually see the outcomes that it's driving within a health system and then ultimately within the country is becoming much more realistic. I definitely see inertia playing a role here. And I can mean that in two very distinctly different ways. On the front end, you've got the beta blocker example where it was kind of delaying the implementation of something that was clearly the you know evidence-based right thing to do. Right. On the other hand, there's also any number of instances, there are certain notable examples of when the evidence proved to be incorrect subsequently, right. like, right. you know, for example, Vioxx or estrogen for everybody after menopause, or there was some AFib drugs that were automatically prescribed after heart attacks that, you know, proved to be at best useless, at, at worst, actually harmful subsequently. So I could also see that 
as we embark down an evidence-based path, that inertia could be bad there as well. Because if there's kind of a small cohort by which we're, we're using to draw what would appear to be at the time a good decision, but then it could be easily later or subsequently amended or proved to be perhaps not quite as good as we thought at first glance. Right. So we have to make sure that inertia at that point doesn't take over and that we're nimble enough to today do one thing and tomorrow perhaps do something else. That's exactly right. And as a side note, there's also this interesting uh, phenomenon of, I I think it's called publication bias, where there is a, a bias to publish things that talk about predominantly things that do have an impact. But there are a lot of studies that don't get published that basically say this intervention makes no difference. And So who knows the range of stuff out there that just didn't get published because it wasn't an exciting answer. (laughs) It basically said, (laughs) you don't, you don't need to, you don't need to do this. To your point, there's, I I think that the engine of doctor intelligence in the past has been all of these very slow time consuming clinical trials, costly clinical trials that have a limited patient set and it's the best we have. And your statistic earlier that, you know, it takes 17 years for that to disseminate into common practice is pretty scary. And it's, but it's understandable because of the system that surrounds doctors today and just their inability to, to keep up with the, the volume of stuff that's coming at them. But there is an exciting time now where each health system will have this kind of, I called it the data operating system earlier, of information, not just a better ability to use technology to disseminate what the evidence from these studies says, but to use their own data within the walls of the health system to then understand and look at outcomes. Outcomes has been such a slippery, quantifiable thing to track over time. And so, you know, many times the only way a doctor knows if their treatment works is if they see that patient in their setting again down the road. And, you know, maybe they don't show up to that same doctor, maybe they go elsewhere, or maybe they pass away, who knows. But being able to see at scale how interventions are based on the evidence, but how the interventions are impacting your particular patient population and being able to adjust in real time is pretty powerful too. And then we get into this whole other topic of, you know, machine learning and and how technology will accelerate all this. That's that's going to be another cool wave of innovation that will happen in our lifetime, I think. And a lot of people think that's really the, the single biggest change that will happen in healthcare in the next decade is going to be just this adoption of much more intelligent machine learning that is going to take a lot of this people-generated recommendations and algorithms and leaning much more on a machine to do that. And that's just a lot faster. What's going on right now relative to the first example that you gave, just enabling providers to see the outcome of their own recommendations? I mean, it's really simple in many ways. If you take something like sepsis as an example, uh, there was a hospital that we've worked with that you know, the three and six hour bundle, there are seven steps or things that you should do within the first three hours and and then the next three hours of a patient having sepsis. And they were able to use data to just show Dr. A, you did two of the three and here are the outcomes for your patients. Here's what Dr. B did. She did all three of those and here are the outcomes and they were superior. And that type of data is very powerful for a doctor to say, okay, I get it. If I do this additional step, it's clear to me now that 
my peers that are doing all three of those are getting much better outcomes. And that becomes a very powerful conversation. Again, they have to believe the underlying data. And that's a problem in and of itself within healthcare is just we have this kind of weird dichotomy in healthcare where in, in one conversation, everybody's excited about machine learning as as we are and all these rare, really sexy kind of futuristic things. But on the other side of the equation, the quality of the underlying data is suspect and people don't believe it. And so it's, you know, there's some blocking and tackling that needs to happen to pull out very basic data before you move on to the the cool stuff. But that's it, just being able to surface that data, share it with the physicians and let them amongst their peers provide that peer pressure to raise their level of practice. Hospitals, in the sepsis example that you just gave, they actually would have the wherewithal and the data capacity, at least in a the baseline example that you just gave, to pull off the analysis that you just said. In your opinion, is that relatively rare or is that something that everybody's kind of ramping up and going to be able to do now or soon? You would think that that would be something that's very easy or required is just show me the data on my patients. But unfortunately, in healthcare, you know, you may have many different even within a single system, this is changing as, as hospitals standardize more on a single EHR, but you know, disparate EHR systems, you may merge into a uh, or acquire another health system that has a different EHR, and so they don't talk to each other. And so just being able to aggregate all that data is very challenging for a system. And then as I say, you know, agreeing on what data and evidence do you want to look at? So for the sepsis bundle, as an example, there's pretty good agreement around the three and six hour bundles, but different systems do different things. And so you have to get that agreement about, okay, we want to look at, we may add a different step in ours, and that's going to be our definition of success. And so you have to get agreement on that. And then, as I say, getting physicians to believe that the data is right and that it's treating their kind of their data set fairly is all a challenge for for health systems. And so we're we're just kind of coming into that, that place. Just to dig one level below what you just said, physicians believing in the data, is that the same as or different from, because if I was a physician, I'd be like, okay, well, I didn't do as well as she did, but all her patients were teenage kids on no meds and my patient had heart failure. So, you know, so is it like a, a cohort variance or is that they don't trust that the data set includes maybe to your earlier point, the patient checked themselves out. So who knows what happened to that patient? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of probably more of the first. So they, you know, my patients are different type situation is is very common. But there's also just an, an underlying distrust of the quality of the data. Are we truly capturing accurate data? You know, is what you're presenting to me comprehensive? And so that's why you know, this, and I keep saying this starting small thing is so important. You, you have to find, if you pick sepsis as an example, that's a, a year-long effort just to get all the physicians to agree that this is how we want to think about sepsis. This is how we want the data that we want to look at and surface, how we want to govern that data, make sure they're capturing it correctly in the EHR, because uh, you're going to find cases where people may not enter things either accurately or timely. And, and all of that has to be kind of that data wobble has to come out and 
where people start to really trust it. Once the physicians, as they own that process of, of deciding all this, they are in a much better position to feel good about the data they're presented and then to actually drive improvements and outcomes. And when you start seeing outcome improvements, you know, you literally reductions in mortality and things that are truly newsworthy, positive impacts, that gets them excited and they want to scale that up and do it in other places. And that's the approach today, at least, that with given all the challenges that health systems and physicians have that that seems to be effective, albeit somewhat slow, but just because of all those challenges. And what incentive does a hospital have to do this today as opposed to why weren't they doing this 20 years ago? It's a timely question, too, just given all the question about where value-based care is going in Washington. But I think there, there seems to be, at least with folks that, that I talk to, a, a general recognition that we are moving to a more value-based care world, a, a higher focus on outcomes and quality. And so health system leadership is certainly taking the time and making investments to try and build capabilities around how do we care for populations, how do we truly improved quality. And I think with the knowledge that transparency is coming, they're going to have to, there's going to be a lot more understanding of where better quality care is happening. Even today, even with some of the data that's out there today, it's still hard to sort through uh, where you should go for a particular type of treatment. It's just the quality data is still coming up to speed. But I think the for better or worse, the finances of healthcare are shifting to and that's usually what drives things in healthcare. And they're certainly shifting to a focus on value and, and you know, reducing readmissions, reducing complications and infections and negative outcomes and, and reducing the overall cost of care and improving quality. And leveraging evidence generally is going to help with that. And I think there is an increasing recognition at the health system leadership level that that's important and they need to put in place the right people, the right leadership, the right systems, et cetera, to, to help scale that up across their, their health system. And I know that Health Catalyst does work in this general vicinity. If someone's interested in learning more about Health Catalyst and the work that you do there, where can they go for more info? Easiest thing is probably hit our website, healthcatalyst.com, and, and you can certainly reach out to our teams there. And there's a ton of information about a lot of the stuff we've talked about today out there. And there's a lot of cool companies out there that are all chasing the same goal that we are. So as I say, I'm, I'm excited to be in healthcare today. I think, I think we really, you know, in our lifetime, we'll see this problem that we've talked about in a much different place 20 years from now and a much healthier place in terms of the type of care that anybody will get in this country. It's cool to be hopefully a part of that. It has been great having you on the other side of the microphone today, Alex. Thank you so much. This was awesome, Stacey. I really appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.